John chapter 3. We've been slowly walking through the book of John, but also just taking our time in John chapter 3. One of the most significant chapters in the Bible, um, revealing salvation, um, the new birth. And today we're going to see uh, the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about we looked at last time in verse 21. And we'll look at John the Baptist today. So if you would look with me, John chapter 3, verse 21. So this is how we closed last time. So those who've come to know Christ, they, uh, they have been born again, they have been redeemed. There's been this big, long conversation uh, with Nicodemus, and Jesus closes this conversation by saying, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so as we close last time, and in case you weren't here or you were here, we would be reminded, John closes this and says, here are three identifying marks that are the reality of those who have come to know Christ as Savior and the new birth has come. And the first one is this, is they affirm a, an absolute standard of truth. And so those, those, he says there in the first part of 21, he says, but whoever does what is true. So there's, a, there's an embracing of an absolute standard of truth. Not this group has a truth and that group has a truth. And we just, we don't really know what truth is. But there's truth and it's, and it's connected to Jesus and it's revealed in the scripture. So there's an affirmation of biblical truth and revelation connected with that. Now then there's a response to this belief that Jesus said that those who do what is true... Here's what they do. There's a, there's a movement in their life, and here's what the movement is. They come to the light. They, they, want, they want everything in their life to be out in the open, before the eyes of God, and before the revealed Scripture, what it has to say about our lives. And there's a, there's a heart that comes to a, a worship place like this that says, Lord, today, I don't want to hold anything back. I want you to speak. I want you to shine your light, because what I need more than anything else is more light. We know what it's like to have more darkness. It never brings life. So, Lord, your life brings light. You are the light of men. And so, so may your truth just reign in this building today as we gather in your name so that um, that affirmation and that response of us would be there. So we affirm biblical truth. We respond by coming into the light and wanting more light. And then the third mark of those who've come to know Christ is that they live out their faith and they do so in such a way that is demonstrative that God gets the glory and there's no attention drawn to ourselves. And so that's what he says in the last part of 21. So that it may be clearly seen that his works, what he does, how he lives, that they have been carried out in God, that God has enabled us to live the way that we are living. And so what I find fitting is that John the writer is going to give us an example from the life of John the Baptist to say let me show you what verse 21 looks like in someone and it's in the life of the Old Testament prophet the last Old Testament prophet whose name is John the Baptist so let me give you the context of what we're going to look at today before we read um, the scripture two highly God-ordained very successful spirit-moving powerful ministries are doing ministry in the same area in the same region john the baptist has had a thriving baptism and preaching ministry 
lives have been changed. Incredible things are happening and taking place. We will see today that Jesus and the disciples are also in the same area. And they are, watch this, doing the same ministry that John the Baptist has been doing. The disciples are baptizing people. So there is teaching going on from John the Baptist, a a proclamation um, about the Messiah, about repentance, and he's baptizing. Jesus is not baptizing, although we're going to read a verse in a moment, and you're going to go, yeah, he's baptizing. John clarifies it in John 4.1 that Jesus actually didn't baptize. And the reason Jesus didn't baptize people, because you know what we would do? We would start, we'd start ranking the prominence of baptism. Oh, well, I was baptized by Jesus, so my baptism's better. So Jesus, knowing the sinfulness of our hearts and how we want to prop ourselves up, how spiritual we are, he didn't do any baptizing, but the disciples were, were baptizing. So watch this. Two prominent, God-ordained, God-centered, God-glorifying ministries are happening in the, tank, in the same place. And we're going to see the incredible, humble heart of John the Baptist um, in the midst of this. And so they are both um, taking place in this area. And I want to make one more point before we read the text. I don't know what it's like to live in the first century. I, 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 I love to read history. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Tom Holland. Um, he's a British historian. It's called Dominion, and it traces the history of how uh, Christianity has impacted the West. It's just a phenomenal history book. If you're in history, I highly recommend this. It's called Dominion by Tom Holland, and so I've been reading about um, all of these all of these things. But I tell you, when you come to the first century, those people who lived in first century Israel lived in one of the most unique times and most powerful times in the history of the world. And here's why. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, was thriving. Strong, powerful ministry. God was moving in the midst of that. The Messiah was there. God in a body was walking on the earth. And I believe it shouldn't be shocking to us that in... AD 70, Jerusalem falls, the temple falls, because the Jewish response to the, all of this revelation that they had been given was to, for the most part, reject it. And so this great judgment comes upon the people. Hey, um, I think we need to, hey, people are cold. Can you turn those off? I'm, I'm going to see people going. I'm, I'm, I'm loving y'all. People are under the fans. are like, what are you doing to me? Um, Husbands, fan your wife if she needs it. Uh, wife, fan your husband if she needs it. Anyway, all right. You're holding a baby. You can't fan your wife, okay? So you're going you're gonna to have to fan yourself, okay? All right. All right. Um, so this was happening in first century um, Israel. Great revelation, powerful, incredible things. All right, let's look. John 3, look with me. In 22, we're going to go down to 30. So John the Apostle is going to give an example of John the Baptist of the fulfillment of what it looks like in verse 21. So 22 says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This is water purification and religious rites connected uh, with that. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, these are John the Baptist's disciples, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So let me, let me just set the stage a little bit more for us. Um, have you ever heard of this word called pride? Um, it can be a real danger to us where we want to exalt ourselves and, and think of ourselves more highly than, our, than ourselves. The book of Proverbs has a number of different things to say about that. But when you look at the life of John the Baptist, if you could just think about it, John was an incredible man of God, but John was also a man. And he had a heart that was fallen. And the reality was, boy, there were some things about John's life that you could stack up and you could go, boy, you want to you see somebody who could say, boy, I've accomplished stuff on the earth. Look at my life. John the Baptist is that person. Let me give you several of those things. And there's a danger of pride that comes from great success. Here's the first thing that we know about John the Baptist. Luke 1.15 tells us this. This is the angel who appeared to John's father in the temple and said this, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And listen to this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So, Mother is pregnant, John's in the womb, the Holy Spirit fills John's life in the womb. That's pretty incredibly amazing. From the womb, this was true about John the Baptist. Second thing we know about John the Baptist is in Luke 1.17. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And here's what John would do. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. So not only was he filled from birth by the Holy Spirit, he would be the forerunner that would prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. This announcement would come also to say, you could say this, um, um, you know, when I was born, before I was born, the angels came and announced my coming. I mean, that's, that's amazing that the angel announced that. Here's a third reality about John. He was incredibly successful in this calling he had from God. Listen to Matthew 3, 5. Listen to these words. Then Jerusalem, a lot of people lived in Jerusalem, by the way. Then Jerusalem, and all Judea, huge area, Judea, all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan River, people who lived along the Jordan River, they were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So watch this. So not only was he filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb, he was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He also had everybody in the country coming out to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. Boy, I mean, that could, that could lift your spirits to say, boy, I'm, I'm pretty important, pretty significant. In case that's not enough to, to potentially tempt John into a place of pride and greater significance. He was also the fulfillment of the very last words spoken in the Old Testament. Malachi, last two words, last two sentences spoken in the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of those in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So that he had that going for him. In case that wasn't enough to potentially tempt him toward pride, he was also affirmed by Jesus himself as the greatest man up to that point in time who ever lived in history. Listen to these words of Jesus, Matthew eleven eleven. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, every one of those things, every single one of those things, could have led John, that as he was doing his ministry and all the success that is there, to think that John was pretty prominent in the kingdom of God and that, and that he was really special. But yet John had an understanding because he knew who God was and it had an impact on him knowing who he was. And we're going to see that he was just literally unaffected by those things to draw any attention to himself. Here's the second thing I want us to see this morning. So the first was the danger potential that can come um, with pride. And the second thing, and we won't spend a lot of time here, we're going to spend quite a bit of time with this in about three weeks, is, but I want to talk about, just for a moment, the priority of water baptism. I want to talk about the priority of water baptism. So verse 22 of chapter 3 says, and after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptized. And go to chapter 4 in John, just for a moment, look at verse 1. John's going to give us a clarification that Jesus didn't actually baptize, but it was the disciples, but they were doing so under the authority of Jesus. 4.1 says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2 says, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So let me just, let me just make this statement and we'll move on, but I, I, I really want you to hear it because I think it's really, really important. So, God ordained a baptizing ministry with the last Old Testament prophet. His name was John the Baptist. Literally thousands of people from Jerusalem, all of Judea, those living in the, in the Jordan River area, came to John, not just to hear his preaching, but to be baptized by him, and water baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jesus comes along, who is the Son of God, the eternal God, who has never had a beginning, he will never have an end. And as he starts his ministry, guess what Jesus also affirms? Jesus affirms water baptism. So here's the point. Church, life point, Christian, dad, mom, grandma, whoever you are, we cannot say to God that biblically water baptism is not important to God. It's very important to God. God, God established the forerunning and the preparation for the coming of Jesus with water baptism. Jesus came along, and Jesus, under the, his authority, told the disciples to baptize people in water. Um, I'm so far ahead. I've already got my March 29th sermon done, and it was all about baptism this week. So I've been reading about baptism. The book of Acts, guess what permeates the book of Acts after salvation? Water baptism. So here's my point, and you can, you can email me all you want this week, but I'm just going to tell you, go read the Bible. The Bible affirms water baptism. So if you're a Christ follower and you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, do not say that you're not required under, under the New Testament covenant. Now, it doesn't complete your salvation, but it is affirmed this is what we are to do. What, what were the very last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Go to the nations and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So watch, church. If I've not made myself clear, this is very clear. If you are a Christ follower, you need to be dunked underwater in front of people to give testimony to this. It's biblical. Don't email me. Okay? I'll send you 
all of the stuff. Here's the third point this morning. Look at verse 24. And it's in parentheses. It's nine words in verse 24. And they are powerful. Such a key short, short, short verse. Verse 24 says this. For John had not yet been put in prison. So we know that John is going to continue to preach. He's going to continue to baptize, even though, watch this, he, is all, he has baptized Jesus already. Jesus has started his ministry. Jesus has gone to his first Passover, done incredible miracles. He's done the, the miracle of the, of the water turning into wine. He has continued to preach. He's had this conversation with Nicodemus. So Jesus' ministry is thriving. Watch this about John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't do this. I'm the forerunner of the Messiah. He's here. His ministry's thriving. His disciples are baptizing people. I'm going to build a nice little cottage here by the fountains of Anon. And I'm going to live by the river. And I'm going to think back on how great it was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And I'm going to chill out for the rest of my days. That is not what John the Baptist does. What does he do? He continues to do what he had been called to do. And watch this. He was going to do it until he could breathe no more until, or until God said, stop. The Messiah's here. Stop. Now, he's not here in the second service, but I bragged on somebody who was a part of our church um, today. And I, I, I have great admiration for this man who's a part of our body. Um, Rick Needham uh, was a pastor. He was an army chaplain. And, and uh, Rick has been retired for a long time. And, you know, retired people, they don't do anything at all. They're just lazy people. And, you know, they don't, they don't do anything. Um, and I know that that's not true. Rick has a nerve condition, in case you don't know this, where from the bottom of his soles to the tip of his tongue, it's like tingling needles, and it comes on from time to time, and it's been a part of his life for a number of years, but for the last two months, he got a cold, and it came back, and, uh, and he, just, it, it, he just, he lives in pain. Um, he's been my life group leader for years. He's there. Some of you people... Um, I could really stomp on your toes right now, but I'm not going to. But Rick never misses a life group meeting. His tongue, as he teaches us, tingles. It's like somebody sticking needles. He's going to preach next Sunday morning because I'm going to be in Mississippi, and you better be here. Okay, you better be here. I'm going to ask, and I'm gonna take, we're going to have people take pictures, <laughs> both services, and I'll see if you were here or not. And I could email you from Mississippi, or I can text you. Shame on you for not being there. But Rick Needham's going to stand here next Sunday morning. From the bottom of his feet, his feet to the tip of his tongue, he will have needles and he will proclaim the truth of God. Every Saturday morning, Rick Needham's at Collin County Jail teaching the Bible to the men who are in prison. You see, listen, we must finish well. Finish well. John had, had basically accomplished what he had been called to do, but he didn't quit. He was going to continue on until God said, don't do this anymore. And so the point for us in this, this little phrase here, for John had not yet been put in prison. So John's idea and, and, and vision was this, is I'm going to continue to do what I've been called to do. I don't care. I'm going to finish and I'm going to do, I'm going to proclaim Jesus and I'm going to baptize people and I'm going to call people to repentance, and you and I must have this faithfulness and this I, this continuance um, to follow through. Let's look at twenty five now. 
Did you know that there are debates and discussions always about theology and doctrine in the church? And sometimes they go well and sometimes they don't go well. And this is not anything new. It happens in our text. So look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and a Jew over purification. Now, you've been there before. Some topic gets brought up and people want to, and you're like, oh gosh, why did they bring this up again? Or why did they bring, or I don't like the talk. And so people have these discussions and, and, and a lot of these discussions that we have in 2020, they've been having for 2,000 years. And we think that we're going to settle them now, and they haven't been settled for 2,000 years. And, but it, you know, sometimes people like to talk about them. Some people, sometimes they like to argue about them. But they've just been around for a long time. And this is, this is kind of usually how it starts. Hey, what do you think about blank? And there begins to be a discussion. And then a little bit later, you know, sometimes people get fired up about it. And, and, and sometimes it moves to a place that is a good place. And sometimes it moves to where it's not a a good place but in the text here somebody came and said hey you know you're they came to john the baptist disciples and said hey your guys baptizing with water but but you know the old testament tells us that there's purification rites with water that we should be following and so this discussion of which was more valid was john's baptism more valid or was the old testament purification rites more valid. And so, so this discussion arose in, in the Greek. When you see this word discussion, it was a little more than just a discussion. It was a little, a little bit of an intensity that was, that was connected with it. But if you know anything about John the Baptist, he had never gone to club Pharisee and joined, paid his membership dues. He was not really a big fan of theirs. As a matter of fact, he was hard on them, and Jesus was hard on them. And so, so they, they come to the disciples of John the Baptist and ask him, you know, what, what is the what is the deal? So is, it, is John's baptism more important than the Old Testament purification rites, which is more valid and which is more important? So it begins this discussion um, that was happening and taking place there. Now, let me just make a couple of comments, um, and we're going to move on with this. There are things connected to our faith that um, we're not all going to agree on. There's some different perspectives. Let me give one of them. So we, we affirm that the Bible teaches that there, there will be a rapture of the church. Some people believe it's pre-tribulation, um, pre at the very beginning of the seven years. Some people are mid-trib. They believe at the three-and-a-half-year mark, God takes the church. Some people believe that God takes the church at the end of the seven years. Um, and so there are different perspectives, and those aren't the only three perspectives about that, but those are the, the three main ones. And so we can have some, listen, we can have some differing views on that, but there are some things that we cannot have differing views on at all, like Jesus is the only way. And so sometimes somebody may have a perspective about things, and they may raise a question about things, and they may have a perspective about something that is an uncompromising doctrine of the church. And when that has arisen, leaders, life group, friend, dad, youth, youth uh, leader, person, we have to, not in a negative way, but we have to push back against that negative view. We do. We just have to push back and say, that's not a biblical view. We, um, some other things, there's some perspectives on those things, but some of those things we cannot change our view. Is Jesus the only way, or can you get to God through other religions as well? That's one we can't compromise on. 
Jesus is the only way. So can we earn our way to salvation? Is it a works-based salvation? No, we cannot earn our way. It is through grace, through faith, through Christ alone, and that is something that we can't compromise on. And so in our text here, this, this debate came up about, okay, so is it Old Testament purification rites? Is it John uh, the Baptist, water baptism? Is that what's more important? And, and, and so my point is just to simply say this. Religious dis- discussions and debates over who's right have been around for a long time. And by the way, guess what they're going to do? They will remain. And so we fight for and stand for the ones that you cannot compromise on. But the others that you can go, okay, yeah, there's a way to see it that way. I may not see it that way, but I understand and see that you see it that way. And so those things we can be okay with a little bit of the tension that is connected with that. But we must be careful that when we do hear things that we do make a stand on what is connected to what is truth. And so these religious discussions over who's right, they will continue to be around. But here's the heart of the matter. Something in the heart of John the Baptist's disciples began to rise up from this initial discussion. Because the next verse says this, that John the Baptist's disciples go to John and they want to know, John, are you going to do something about something that we've heard, something that's true? And here's what was true. Jesus' ministry watch this, was getting bigger. Guess whose ministry was shrinking? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's disciples loved John. He's had a great impact upon their lives. More people now are going to Jesus and the disciples. Less people are coming to John. And so they want to know, what does this mean for us? John, does this bother you? John, are you going to do anything about that? They're thinking to themselves, What does this mean for me? I've been following the Baptist. I've left my home. I've been out here helping him preach and and baptize people and help with all of this. What does this mean to us? And so they come to John, and they're concerned about John. John, what's your perspective of this? Because more people are going to see Jesus now than are coming to us. And John's response to this change is so beautiful and so incredible that we're going to look at these principles here in just a moment. I I understand where the disciples are coming from. I mean, can you imagine if you've been given a couple years of your life out there with John, and now all of a sudden it's just been happening, and it's awesome, but now everybody is going to follow this other guy. But you see, John knew that he was never going to be the sole focus of the Israelites that he came just to point to Jesus, but I'm not for sure his disciples had gotten to that place of clarity yet. And you know what was in their heart? Jealousy a little bit. I'm concerned for my rabbi, John the Baptist, and people are going to this other guy who's being called rabbi and this this great teacher. And this more success of Jesus was beginning to work into their heart and... uh, They kind of didn't really know what to do about it. And John had made this great declaration earlier about who Jesus is. He was walking by one day and John was with his disciples and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. That guy right there, he's the one who's going to take away the sin of the world. The very next day, John's with some other disciples. Jesus comes walking by and it says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
of God. And by the way, this is what happens in our lives when jealousy gets to be a part of it. We exaggerate things. You ever been jealous before? And look what, it's, look, look what the text says. They come to John the Baptist and say, look, everybody's going to him. Well, that's not true. If they would have just looked around, John still had a lot of people. He was still baptizing. But sometimes when you get jealous, it just seems like it's just a greater thing. And so it's like, oh, everybody's going. You have anybody in that in your life who says, you always do this every time you do this or all the, you know. And so there's this great exaggeration that is happening and take, takes place. Um, but it's not the case. Jesus was getting more popular in the eyes of the people. And they didn't want John to fade off into obscurity. And after so much success and so profitable was his ministry upon the nation that they didn't want that to disappear. Now, this happened in Jesus' life one day. Listen to these words. This is in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw somebody, and this is what they were doing. We were going along, and they were doing ministry. You know what they were doing? They were casting out demons in your name. But they're not us. They're not a part of the in-group. They're not us. And so it says this. They were casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop them from casting out demons because he was not following us. And here's what Jesus said. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us, what do you remember what Jesus said? It's for us. So don't, don't do that. And so here's what I'd like to do. I want to close our time, and I want to briefly give you, and I can briefly do it, I want to briefly give you six principles of what biblical humility looks like from the life of John the Baptist. And here's the first one. So they come, disciples come to him, John's disciples. Everybody's going to Jesus. His thing's getting bigger. Our thing's getting smaller. John, what are you going to do about this? What, what are you going to do? And John responds, I'm not going to do anything. And he gives this perspective. And here's the first principle. If you and I are going to walk in biblical humility, understanding who Christ is, understanding who we are, who we, are it will, we will have humility that will be born out of an understanding of God's sovereignty. So look what John says in verse 27. So here's how John answered his disciples who were jealous for him and were concerned that he was losing prominence in the eyes of the people and Jesus was getting greater prominence. John says these words in 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So John's saying this to his disciples. Brothers, I love you, and it has been great. It has been awesome, and we're going to continue to do this until we're told not to do this anymore or until we're dead. We're going, to, we're going to proclaim that the Messiah is here. We're, we're going to do that, but here's the reality. We've been able to do this not because we're great, but because God as a gift has given us this opportunity to be the forerunner and, and the one who prepared for the coming of Jesus. You see, John did not have an inflated view of himself. He wasn't out to build up his self-esteem or to promote his own ministry, his own school of thought. Come to my seminary. I'm going to start a Bible school. John wasn't any of that. He wasn't concerned about his own reputation. His aim was to exalt the coming king whose name was Jesus and who was present. And from God's sovereignty... 
you and I are given the things that you and I have, and all things come from God's sovereignty. So everything, John recognized everything that's been given to me has been given to me by God. And so he says, brothers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Here's the second mark of biblical humility. So one, it's an understanding of God's sovereignty that God alone gives this. This was similar, but it's a little bit different. We must recognize biblical humility recognizes we do not build the the success of ministry, but God gives and God blesses. It's God's work. It's not ours. So a person cannot receive even one thing. Every success we will ever have comes from God and the kingdom of heaven, and we should never let our minds drift to a place where we think that we are the key to anything. And you may be important at your work, but if you died this week, you know what they're going to do in a few weeks? They're going to replace you. If I died this week, somebody else will be in here, even though I, was, even though I wasn't going to be here next week anyway. The following week, there would be somebody here preaching. Because this place is not about me, it's not about you, it is about Him. Period. And we must never lose sight of that. John didn't. True biblical success comes from the same place always, a move of the Spirit of God. God's the one who blesses. God is the one who does this. And so the sovereign God, He's in charge of everything, including the increase and, watch this, the decrease. No, but, me, but, but if the decrease comes, did I, did I miss God along the way? Is that my fault? And I don't, I don't know what the, what the disciples of John fully said to him, but what if they came to him and said, John, we're doing something wrong. That guy that you were testifying about, everybody's going over there to him and things are getting smaller here. John, we've got we to gotta change things up, John. That, that thing's getting better and bigger, and we're getting smaller. So, John, what do we do? And that just, that just didn't move John's heart. John just understood that God gives the increase. And watch this. He also gives the decrease. Now, we Americans, that just grates on our American Christianity system because bigger is always better, but it's not biblical. Jesus was such a bad leader that on the night of his arrested, every one of his followers fled from him in the Garden of Eden. Now, I say that he wasn't a bad leader. But from man's perspective, you would say, boy, that's bad leadership. You invested three and a half years of your life in these men and they can't even stay with you in your most dire moment and you've been telling them that this was coming and it's your dire moment. You've been praying. You've told them, don't fall asleep. They fall asleep. You come back again. They fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. And they do it. Was Jesus a bad leader? Absolutely not. Here we are 2,000 years later and that investment, in a snapshot of time, it looked like maybe he was a failure, but he was not was not a failure now listen we must recognize that we never build success but god gives and god blesses see success is not dependent upon in ministry of having the largest crowds or the greatest following and secondly success must be defined then if that's not the case Success must be defined then by exalting Christ 
and helping enable others to do the same. That's how you determine success. Now, I said this through the first service, and I'll say it to you. I've been here 11 years now, and this is probably the best it's going to get from me. This is the best my preaching's going to be. It's probably not going to get any better, and I'm sorry about that. This is the way it is. There's better preachers out there. I, I know that to be true. I affirm that, and, and, and my flesh could say, I, I want to be the greatest preacher in America. Well, you know what? I'm not going to be, and I, I've had to come to that realization. Not that I thought that I was going to be. But listen, I want, I want you to hear this because I think it's absolutely, absolutely incredible, incredibly important for us. God gives the increase, and we get excited about that, and it's so great, but we also need to praise His name when He gives us a decrease. Because if He's sovereign, He absolutely knows exactly what He is doing with every area of our lives. And I believe John the Baptist's response here just threw cold water on what his disciples were wanting him to do. They were agitated. Everybody's going over there. And he just quenches the conversation and their competitive spirit. He was not in competition with Jesus. Jesus needed to become greater. And so we don't build success. God gives the success and God blesses things. And thirdly, biblical humility has the idea and the mindset that I will build nothing in my life that does not point to Jesus. Look at verse 28. So he's got his brothers there. He's been pouring his life into these disciples. And he says, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I've been telling you this over and over. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so John's heart was to not pretend and not utilize the moment to kind of make himself more prominent that was not his thing he had come to make much of Jesus and we have to always let God be God and that means when we don't understand and when matters don't go our way the way that we planned or the way that we desired we have to yield to the new reality and trust him that he knows exactly what he is doing Let me give an example of my life. 25 years ago, I would have been 29. Boy, that was a long time ago. And you know what I was going to be in my mind? I was going to be, I was going to have a mega church, huge buildings, huge parking lot, huge programs, huge thing. And I was going to sit on top of it all. I was going to be the pastor of a mega church. And my reality is this. And I don't mean that mean. So let me ask a question. Has my life become a failure because my plans at 29 have not ended up at age 54? And I would say no. I would say that I am right where I'm supposed to be. And the reason is, is that we plan our way, but the Lord determines our steps. And so, John gets this. Do we get it? 
I'm not the Christ. I am not that important. And he didn't build anything in his life other than to point to the glory of Jesus. And boy, what a da- great danger could have been for him. He had thousands coming to hear him. He's baptizing them, but John was secure in who he was. And I believe that every work of ministry is very important and significant, but there is only one who is preeminent, and that's Jesus. So we don't exalt America's pastors. We don't exalt America's musicians, Christian musicians. We don't exalt Christian books. We exalt Jesus Christ. That's what we exalt. And John could have had, he did, had an unbelievable God-ordained ministry, and his ministry was spent on making less of himself and making more of Jesus. And we cannot lose sight of that, that we build nothing in our lives that doesn't point to Jesus, because here's the reality. John knew that Jesus is the word, that John was just a voice. John knew that Jesus was the groom of the church and that John was just the best man affirming the greatness of the groom and what the groom would do. And you and I must be like John who was secure in who he was and he found contentment that it was just going to be a voice to get things ready. Can I give you some insight about this little church here at 6374 County Road 161 in McKinney, Texas? That our street sign down the road says Ridge, not 161, but they won't let us say our address is Ridge because government is mean and they don't let us say things and do things. They're so oppressive. That's a joke, but anyway. Um, <coughs> you can see it when you leave. It says Ridge down there, but anyway. Um, you know what God's allowed us to do? We built a church a couple years ago in the foothills of the Himalayas among an unreached people group that had never heard the gospel. This partnership that we have in Asia um, at about 11,000 feet or so up in the Himalayas, there's some new believers there and probably in about 18 months from now we're going to help them build a church building again in the midst of an unreached people group up there. It's about 13 believers now. You see, I would say, is that a failure or is that a success? Do you know that 50% of our church body every year goes out on a mission trip? Nobody in the world does that. And I'm not, I need to be humble about that, don't I? Yeah, okay, Lord, I'm humble about that. Okay, fair enough. Um, But listen, we've got to have a biblical criteria to measure success. And I think success is, do we have a passion to exalt the glory of Jesus. And that's how you determine whether you're doing things right. Because that was the heart of John the Baptist. Never pointed to himself. And so biblical humility is grounded in knowing who God is and knowing who we are in light of him. Just a couple more things. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Here's the fourth principle of biblical humility. It finds a greater joy in obedience than in getting the glory for what we do. 
John just is excited. Man, I'm just so thankful that from God's sovereignty, he, he's allowed me to be the one to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he's just incredibly grateful that he got to be obedient in that great work. Now, all through the Old Testament into the New Testament, this image of the bridegroom of God, that God's the bridegroom and he's got a bride, which is his people. And there was going to be a, a marriage and a, a relationship. Paul writes about it. It's, it's in the Gospels. Isaiah writes about it. Hosea speaks about it as well. And John writes about the same theme uh, three times in the book of Revelation. And watch this. If the Old Testament affirms that Yahweh is the bridegroom of God's people and the New Testament affirms that Jesus is the bridegroom of God's people, then John the Baptist here is affirming that Jesus is God. He's God. He's not a prophet. He's not a great teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He is equal to Yahweh. He is God. And John says, I get to be the best man, and he was so excited about that. John had this understanding that he was never going to be a... Watch this. This is, this is fascinating, I think. When you look at these words, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, that he watches. He, he says, I stand and hear him, and I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Do you know what John the Baptist was not going to get to be a part of? The church. He was not going to be the New Testament bride. He was going to be dead before Jesus ever went to the cross. And he knew that I've just come to be the best man. I'm not going to be here to see um, the fulfillment of this, but I'm here and I'm, and I'm okay with that because my joy is obedience. My, my obedience and in, to what God's entrusted with me, that, that's what matters to me more than anything else. And it brings us to the fifth principle, that humility finds joy, the great joy, in hearing the voice of God. And so John, that's why he says there, who stands and hears him. So he stands. Watch this. He stands posture. Listen, posture in worship, posture during the sermon matters. Now, this weekend I was at a student conference. Friday night, I did not have an enjoyable time because of the people who sat in front of me. Their posture was horrible. They weren't our students. I don't know where they were from, but this is what happened. I'm behind them, and they're sitting there, and proclamation of the Scripture. I mean, just powerful stuff's going on. And they're Instagramming, showing it, and I, all I can do is I see it. It's right in front of me. And I was patient for one session. <laughs> the second session, I'd lost my patience. But watch what happened. They didn't listen to any proclamation. But when the music started, they were this. Oh, bah, 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 bah. And I'm just telling you, there's a disconnect there. Because the preaching of the word is more important than the music. And so John says, my posture, I stand. I stand. And I rejoice at hearing the bridegroom's voice. And if you and I are going to have true biblical humility... I'm not downplaying music. Don't go that far. Music is a part of Scripture. But the proclamation of the truth of God's Word matters most. It is the revelation of who He is. And so John says, I, I have this great joy because I hear, I got to hear 
the voice of the bridegroom. I get to hear his voice. Here's the last thing this morning. Biblical humility embraces the joy of living a life that is less. And here's how John turns to his brothers. He turns to his brothers and he says, he says, brothers, I know we've had a great ministry and Jesus and his disciples, it's increasing. Ours is becoming less. But brothers, let me remind you, we, we don't get anything unless it's been given um, from him. And so we've had this unique opportunity. But here's the reality, brothers. Um, he has to increase. And I have to decrease. And that means we have to decrease He has to become the preeminent one and the prominent one. We've kind of had that role in the sense of ministry. People have been coming to us, even though we've been talking about the coming of the Messiah, but the Messiah is here. So here's our role. We've got to make much of him. We've got to make much of him. We're not going to make much of us. And so John says these words, these powerful words that we have quote a lot. He must increase. I must decrease. And I believe that no work in the world is more honorable and joyful than the ministry in the gospel where you stand for Jesus and you proclaim the truth and people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior and to lead perishing people to Christ and the cross. It is this great work, and that was what John just embraced. He knew that was the reality for him. Well, let me close with this thought. Richard Baxter was a pastor. He lived from... 1615 to 1691. And on his deathbed, um, people were affirming um, the great powerful ministry that he had. He had written books. He had, he had had a prominent teaching ministry and, and thousands upon thousands of people had come to know Christ. And on his uh, deathbed, they're affirming him and he said this. He said, I was but a pen a pen in God's hand. But what praise is really due a pen? God is to get the praise, was Richard Baxter's idea. John was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And he was not ever going to live, and no follower of Jesus is ever going to live free from issues and trouble of this life. And here's John the Baptist. He's a faithful man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. From his mother's womb, he's the last Old Testament prophet. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. Um, Jesus said he was the greatest man up until that day who had ever lived. And yet, in his 30s, he's put in prison. And they cut off his head and they put it on a platter. And they bring it into a room and they mock the life of John the Baptist one night. And so was he a failure? Absolutely not. Was he a failure? Because here we are. 2,000 years later, and we're not talking about that party that took place at Herod's house. We're talking about the faithful testimony of a man of God who said, he must increase, I have to decrease. So this is the biblical fulfillment of John 3, 21. Someone who does what is true, who comes to the light, and does what they do, that God gets the glory. John the Baptist is the example of that in verses 22 through 30. And John would say to us today, John the Baptist would say, more of Jesus, more of Jesus, more of Jesus. That's what we need. More proclamation of who Jesus is. That is what is most important. For we are not owed anything in this life. 
And it should be our great joy now because we have been given the life of Christ to exalt him and to to lose ourselves for the greatness of his glory. That should be our great passion. Let's pray together.